This is an ABC podcast. Oh, give me a land where I may roam, where no others would build and call it their home. A song once heard on Australian Indigenous missions, recently brought to life again by the North Queensland musician Jessie Lloyd as part of her Mission Songs project. On RN, this is Soul Search, the show all about the experience of spirituality and religion. I'm Meredith Lake, and it's great to have your company. Oh, superiority is an unknown word to me. Today on the show, we'll hear a whole lot more from Jessie Lloyd, who spent a few years now recovering the music of the Mission era. Not the hymns sung on Sundays, the folk songs written about life on the Mish the other six days a week, giving voice to Indigenous community and experience. We'll also plough into some of the dilemmas of contemporary life in a new series here on Soul Search called Spiritual Life Hack. I think we live in a, in a culture right now where distraction has become the norm rather than the exception. We have distractions in all sorts of pursuits, in all sorts of devices. And Netflix basically fits into that as one source of distraction amongst many. Catholic theologian Matthew Tan on our chronic distraction in a culture glued to devices. And whether or not you're a Christian giving things up for Lent, perhaps there's something in the idea of sloth worth revisiting in this cultural moment. We'll find out on Spiritual Life Hack later in the program. First, though, to China where for centuries, even millennia, philosophers and artists have explored the unity of heaven and earth. Taoism is one of China's three great traditions, along with Confucianism and Chinese Buddhism. Indigenous to China, its origins remain obscure in history, but its founding story concerns Lao Tzu, the old master, who may have lived in the 6th century BCE. The classic text he's traditionally held to have written, the Tao Te Ching, underscores the intimate unity of heaven, earth and nature. That's the theme of some masterworks from the National Palace Museum in Taipei, currently on display at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. My name is Yin Cao and I'm the Curator of Chinese Art at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. The exhibition is titled Heaven and Earth. Can you tell me about the concept that ties these artworks together that unites them? Mm. So a lot of the art, the aim is to carry some moral values or express some you know, religious belief. When I want to discuss about this exhibition in, during a preparation period, I expressed the, my desire of introducing this very fundamental Chinese um, philosophy, which is uh, heaven, earth and hu- human, the three powers in nature. It's actually deeply rooted in Chinese uh, philosophy, like Taoism, Confucianism. Buddhism was later introduced to China around the first century, um, but the, it also uh, borrowed some of the concepts from Taoism and Confucianist teaching. Yeah, But as a Chinese, actually, growing up, I always have problem thinking Confucianism as a religion. <laughs> I always think it's like a philosophy uh, instead of a religion. Uh, but coming out of that, 
that, the uh, the idea of living with nature in harmony, like uh, follow nature's way. Uh, there's a saying in Chinese culture, if you translate literally, is that heaven and human should combine as one, as one unity. Yeah, so it's quite important uh, concept. There's an object here, a particular piece in this exhibition that sums up that idea. Let's have a look at it. Uh, could you talk to me about what it is we're seeing over there? Yes, uh, it is actually uh, beautiful. When you uh, put it laid flat, it like a, uh, it's a three concentric uh, circles, but each circle has different designs on it. Uh, the innermost uh, ring carries the design of the sun and a constellation representing the heaven, and the, the outermost ring carries the designs of the mountains and the water represent the earth and then the central ring has a design of a dragon. The dragon actually is a symbol of emperor and because emperor is supposed to be the son of the heaven, they're supposed to carry the mandate of the heaven, so he represents the humanity, the human, you know. So these three ring, when you display it in, uh, in vertical, like you can see here in a case, it becomes a globe. But how do you make a balanced globe? Is the three rings have to both coordinate with each other? It's a very beautiful object. It's it's much smaller than I expected, having seen photographs online. But it's all the more exquisite, I think, for seeing how finely balanced and how intricately detailed the rings are. It's a wonderful piece, dating from, from the Ming dynasty. Yeah, 14th century to uh, 17th century. Yeah. Mm. Can you tell me more about the origins and development of that idea of unity in the cosmos? Yeah. Um, actually, uh, Taoism is the indigenous uh, religion in China. And I think many Chinese people, even they don't, call themselves a Taoist, then then their life in a lot of their customs and then the way that they follow their life is following the Taoist uh, principles. There's a saying in Chinese like that go with the flow, like actually in Chinese means go with nature, because so nature is uh, really affecting every aspect of people's life. The the, the founder of uh, the Taoism, Laozi, uh, his real name is uh, uh, Li Er, uh, People believe there's a person like that because during the Warren States uh, period, there were lots of philosophers um, and then there were a lot of uh, texts, and, um, but the most fundamental text is the Tao Te Ching. You have a manuscript copy of the Tao Te Ching here. Yeah, uh-huh. uh, it's, again, a very intriguing item. Yeah. Can you tell us why there's a picture of Lao Tzu on an ox? He tried, I think, to to help the government, but I thought I think he became very disappointed, you know. So so he decided to live a free life, you know. And so whether he rode an ox or not, a water buffalo, uh, we're not quite sure. But I think the very uh, typical uh, kind of depiction of him becomes an old a gentleman riding an, a water buffalo, showing like this free lifestyle you can live without pursuing any. Uh, political or governmental position. The Taoist, the fundamental thing is to return to nature and then you follow the nature and then you can live a very materialized, very poor life, but spiritually you can have a fulfillment. 
I read that Taoism is a tradition that's kind of taught partly by fables mm. through fables and mm -hmm. storytelling mm -hmm. and the legend of the eight immortals well there's mm. many legends of the mm. eight immortals are mm. very popular mm. even now mm. can you tell me about the artwork that depicts the eight immortals. Yes, uh, we have these uh, uh, four leaves from an album it's, uh, dated to Qing Dynasty, also by an artist called uh, Wang Zhongqian, and he actually painted uh, like eight uh, uh, immortals. But also next to these eight immortals, actually they are children's, very playful children's. Even in the, the eight immortals, you look at them carefully; they look like they're very playful. You know, <laughs> yeah. So that's another thing about Taoism. So you, if you're close to nature, you can become a very innocent. Yeah, these eight immortals are very popular in Chinese uh, theatre uh, literature. But for a long time, they sometimes they have different names. You know, they, they refer to eight different like uh, commoners. You know? So for in this uh, eight immortal we see here, it's uh, the uh, eight figures and uh, only one female. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, you can tell the name by the clothes they wear and also the things they carry, you know, and then they can help people to become enlightened, you know, so people in China, like, they, they believe in them, they have pictures of them hanging, it's really embedded in people's life. Can I ask if you have one at your place? Yeah, I think, of course, I go for that, uh, that the female, only female, <laughs> immortal, <laughs> yeah. Yin Cao curator of Chinese art at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. I'm Meredith Lake, and on Soul Search today, we're looking at some incredible treasures, currently in Sydney, from the National Palace Museum in Taipei. The exhibition is called Heaven and Earth in Chinese Art, and it explores one of the deepest themes of Taoist thought, the harmony of heaven, humanity and nature. Now, Yin, we're standing in front of an extraordinary scroll. Mm. Can you describe to us what it is we're seeing? Yeah, so this is a really long uh, hand scroll, uh, nearly uh, four metres long, and then it's painted by one of the Ming Dynasty masters called Wen Zhengming, and he painted this uh, beautiful snowy mountain painting between 1528 and 1532. It took him five years to paint this uh, painting, and it is uh, deemed as a uh, national treasure and it is very rare to be seen even in back in Taipei. This is one of my most favorite pieces in this exhibition. The thing is not only because it's beautifully painted, you know, um, but it's the story behind it. And then this painter of Wen Zhengming, um, he painted this when he quit his position in, in the government in Beijing, in the imperial court, and decided to return to his hometown in Jiangsu in southern China. And then so he stayed in a temple in his hometown and then it starts to snow and then he, his friend gave him a piece of paper and a brush and said, can you paint me a painting? So he just started to paint this snowy scene. But at the end of the painting, there's a, a colophon uh, and he did uh, summarize. He said in the ancient time, a lot of uh, literary artists and uh, aloft scholars paint snowy scene because that's a way of them to 
express their loneliness and also to show they want to get away from the vulgarity, to escape from this mundane world, to enter uh, another room, you know, like that where you can become independent thinker and then you you will be close to nature. Mm. And landscape becomes the dominant form, really, of painting in mm. Chinese art mm. history, doesn't it, by yeah. this time? Yes, uh, the landscape painting, uh, starting, I would say, from late Tang Dynasty, like the 9th century, and then that especially the literati landscape paintings uh, became uh, different from the court paintings, like uh, just the depiction of nature. It's more about uh, the painters or the, the uh, scholars to express their personal feelings and then their dreams, you know, and, and also a lot of literacy and the poem because in Chinese painting you have to have three perfect calligraphy uh, and poem and the painting the three in one painting mm. so so even the form is embodying this idea of unity mm. of distinct but related mm-hmm. things that's correct yeah I read in preparing to mm-hmm. come and speak with mm-hmm. you Yin mm-hmm. that a good landscape painting should show the depth of an artist's perception of the Tao mm. or the way mm-hmm. as yeah. seen in nature. Yes. Is there something that looking at this painting should stir in, in the viewer, in us? Well, for me, you know, this Chinese, especially hand scroll, is the best way to understand that kind of the infinity of nature. Because when in China, when you look at the hand scroll, you don't like show it full like we see it here. You see it section by section. So, and then also when you look at the Chinese hand scroll, you're supposed to look from the right to the left. So, if you look at this painting from the right, you can almost see a scholar wearing a red robe riding a donkey and traveling through the mountain and imagine yourself you open section and then one section then you can see he's like in the snow and then one section he's on the river and then you can see on the river it has some cracks ice cracks and then you sort of captures you you know like you're almost like following him his journey but also he used like the red and green and blue and then to to give you hope uh, and it's also probably related to the Taoism like the yin and the yang you know although you look at it as a snow painting but you can't tell he painted deliberately snow he just left the white paper as it is so you're saying that the balance between yin and yang, mm. that, that, that idea, mm. is shaping his very methodology. Methodology, yeah, I, I believe so. You know, what you can see, uh, he, he uses the ink to paint the river and then the sky, but he left the paper untouched to indicate that there's snow. The sensibility in there really captures me, you know. Mm. Just finally, Yin, can I ask, we've been talking about these artworks mm. as they express and even embody Mm. uh, certain belief systems and Mm. ideas. Mm. How does art figure in your own life and spirituality? What role does art play for you? It's very important and very actually lucky to work in an art museum that I can be so close to these beautiful artworks. For me, uh, I don't know whether it's appropriate to quote these uh, Chilean Nobel writers. In his novel, the main character in his novel, he said, life is a shitstorm, art is the only umbrella. 
when I read about it, I felt like so uh, summarized, you know, uh, so well. Because in China, I think uh, when I grew up, art is supposed to be beautiful. You know, it's supposed to take you away from your troubles, your worries, you know. And it's a bit different from a lot of the contemporary art. Like they're supposed to shock. For me, art is supposed to reveal the beauty of nature, the beauty of people, you know, and to to let me sort of escape from your um, daily, you know, troubles. Well, I feel very lucky to have been able to walk around this exhibition with you today, Yin. Thank you so much for sharing the stories behind these artworks. Thank you very much for uh, having a chat. Art curator Yin Cao who's put together a really wonderful exhibition of artworks from the National Palace Museum in Taipei, Heaven and Earth in Chinese Art. Exclusive to the Art Gallery of New South Wales, it's on now until May the 5th. On RN, you're listening to Soul Search with me, Meredith Lake. On air or on demand via the ABC Listen app. Coming up, Spiritual Life Hack, a new series canvassing the wisdom to be found in religion for dealing with our dilemmas today. Right now, though, the music of day-to-day life on 20th century Indigenous missions. Jessie Lloyd is an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artist from a family of gifted musicians. And for a few years now, she's led the Mission Songs Project, an effort to revive the folk music of state-run reserves and Christian missions. Not the hymns sung in church on Sundays, but the songs sung the rest of the week. And there's a whole tradition of music here spanning the 20th century and Jessie is determined to save it, reviving lost songs and reclaiming a cultural history. RN's Jeff Wood has the story. Oh, give me a land Where I may roam Where no others would build And call it their home Mission Songs Project is an initiative to research and revive contemporary Indigenous folk songs from the missions, settlements and reserves from all around Australia. So basically the old songs from the mission days when our people were restricted from um, practising culture or talking in lingo and having to sing songs in, in English at church. I look for the songs that they were singing after church. Now I think your aunties gave you the idea for this, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah, my, uh, my two aunties, well, uh, one of them is my adopted mother, culturally adopted, uh, Lillian and Linelda Geyer. They usually sing church songs and one day they sang a song that wasn't a hymn and got me curious and they, they told me that they were singing an old song from Palm Island. When the Irix sails away About an old boat called the Irix um, that the old people used to sing when... Um, when everybody who was removed was, was sent over to Palm Island and this was the boat that, that carried everybody in this beautiful song about a, about a seafaring boat and saying goodbye. So I figured there must have been more songs and more stories related to other families and other communities across Australia and so I thought I'd better go and look for them. Tell us about the missions. I guess a lot of people might not know today what the missions were or were about. 
Oh, well, different states had different policies and how they dealt with this sort of native affairs. With Queensland and my family, they had the Aboriginal Protection Act, um, which of course inspired apartheid. But it was a government policy that had created segregation and, and isolated people into um, missions, settlements or reserves outside of townships and had curfews. And of course was um, where the stolen generation were taken to, mixed race children and um, uh, people who were considered troublemakers or nuisances to society. But were of course just sort of our people who were displaced off country and had nowhere else to go. So the missions were kind of, you know, in, in the, the, the context of things, quite complicated uh, and controversial and, 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 and hard and sad, but at the same time, these were our people's homes. They made it their home and, you know, generations of families grew up there and have lived there and made it their own. When the Irish sails away The missions were run by the churches, different denominations, but the um, state-run settlements were run by the state, um, and the, the settlements of the reserves had churches on them. So it was different in different areas, but generally with sort of a, uh, Indigenous community, we'll, we'll refer to these settlements or reserves as missions as well. But I, I think it was very much the missionaries that introduced our people to Western uh, music and instruments because they had to sing at church. And um, our old people just took those music and skills and kind of adapted to, to their own feel and to things um, once church was over. They're mission songs, but they're actually, uh, you were saying today, the songs that they sang, not on Sunday, but the other six days of the week. Yeah, that's right. There's, um, there were six more days in the week. There's songs about um, people traveling, people coming to visit. There's songs about the war. Songs about um, food, I don't know, saying goodbye to loved ones. They just give a beautiful insight into what the day-to-day -day life was on the mission, whether people were um, cutting cane fields or working on the pearl luggers or, or laying tracks or on the stock routes. What was the attitude of the churches or the missions at the time? Did they know about these songs? And, and if they did, did they do anything about them? Oh, I think it depends. It depends on the missionaries and their attitude. I actually just had a really interesting conversation with a lady about half an hour ago and uh, she came to the show and she said that her father was a missionary on a mission up in North New South Wales and quite conservative uh, denomination I think and um, she never remembered hearing any of these because her father wouldn't allow them to sing anything other than hymns whereas I know that there was other churches um, quite open about uh, language preservation and they translated whole hymns in the local tongue so you know allowing that sort of cultural continuation there so it just depended on the places Now how did you find these songs? I did a bit of travelling I picked my family's brains and that were the songs that, that, that we grew up with, um, which was a good start, a good context, and also good advice from my family to, to give the green light to go out and represent my family. But I get most of my stuff um, from elders and old people, senior song men and song women, cruising around the country, and um, most of uh, my travels on the East Coast and also to across to Darwin and Broome. But there's a lot more to go. And a lot of these old people also give that background story and, and ex personal experiences which are, which are more than you find from just hearing a recording. When you say old people, how far back do these songs go? 
from 1900 to about 1960s really. But a lot of the stuff I've got is maybe from the 1920s, 30s. You can hear a lot of influences from different things happening around the time, like the war or the popularity of um, sort of um, country music or the South Pacific kind of musical styles and, you know, the American sailors and, and that coming over. Just, you just hear those cultural infusions and adaptions as you would anywhere when people mingle and jam. It's just whether each community has been enabled to continue these songs for the last four or five generations. Some communities have done it successfully and they have quite a large repertoire that they can maintain, like especially up in the Torres Straits, you know, a lot of people still singing their old songs. And some other places, um, you know, nobody's singing them anymore. A lot of the old people who are still around, they just would never sit the singers. So they knew, they remember the people singing, but they may not remember the songs. So it's handed down through families, word of mouth. Yeah, oral traditions, definitely, from um, generation to generation. And the important point about that is is um, the Mission Songs Project is an important work to show that Indigenous people are still maintaining song traditions. Post-colonisation, you know, we talk about the song traditions in, in pre-colonisation times of song lines and, and all of these language things, but with the Mission Songs Project it shows that we're still co continuing those song traditions. We just sing in English and on Western instruments, but these songs are still being passed down from generation to generation, and also they also uh, are relevant to the cultural, social and, and environmental changes that are happening and and in a hundred years time 200 years time these songs that from the mission songs project will be considered traditional What we're doing in the in the Mission Songs project is, as as, as I focus a lot on the harmonies, uh, which is, is a group singing, basically trying to create the feel of you know, sitting backyard and have barbecues. Somebody grabs the guitar and everybody starts singing. That's the kind of communal feel that I that I try to create. So, give people that experience that they may never have if they don't know any Aboriginal communities or have never really been you know engaged in that way. On the album, there's some beautiful um, instrumentation that, that I've chosen, uh, pedal steel guitar and piano accordion. I try and create that old time feel. And also more personally is because those are the instruments that, that my grandfather played. So I guess in, in, in honor of him and, and his musicality, I put them instruments on there. And, and, and of course the ukulele. You mentioned the album, the songs back home. The last track on that album is a medley and it includes a hymn. I mean, as you've said, most of the songs weren't church songs, but you've included one church song. Why was that? I think it was uh, a good example to show how how a song can travel for a hundred years and t take different shapes and different forms and have different purposes. And, you know, this is the cover song of, of the collection. This is a song that isn't written by an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander composer. Um, it's also known as the Maori Farewell. And, but a lot of Aboriginal people, our elders, claim this song because the sentiment of, of family leaving and, and, and you didn't know if you are going to see them again is still applied. So they, they claim this song and, you know, I was talking to some of my Māori family and they taught me the, uh, the Māori version one. 
Uh, but I remember the tune growing up because my family go to church. That the, the tune was to the hymn "Search Me, O God." So we we do a medley. We do all three. Now is the hour. Search me, O God, and the Maori farewell um, as a way to showcase how the same tune can have different purposes for different people, but with the same sentiment of you just wishing your loved ones well and you hope to see them again. of songs including the hymn Search Me O God and Now Is The Hour. The tune was adopted by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples living on missions in the early 20th century and it's now being revived by Jessie Lloyd and her collaborators on the groundbreaking Mission Songs Project. If you like the sound of that, have a listen to the 2017 album, The Songs Back Home. Or you can catch Jessie Lloyd and the Mission Songs Project at the National Folk Festival in Canberra over the Easter long weekend. We'll put all the details on the Soul Search website. Well, we all know the world's got problems. And we all do, in our own lives. Do the world's religious traditions have any advice that might help us, whatever our theological stripes? Well, on Soul Search today, we're launching a new series rating religion for some practical insight. It's called Spiritual Life Hack, and it's presented by Justine Toe, a senior fellow at the Centre for Public Christianity. I asked Justine, what exactly is a spiritual life hack? Well, Meredith, the idea is that people today love life hacks like myself, but we are increasingly less likely to look to religion for it. Uh, the, the census says that there's this growing cohort of people who tick the no religion box, the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S. At the same time, they are really keen on, you know, Jordan Peterson's 12 rules for life, or if mm. he's too kind of some people fringe, are. right, for some people. <laughs> there's Yuval Harari's 21 lessons for the 21st century. So it's like the Ten Commandments are out, but all these other um, tips for life are in. But I just think, I, I feel quite sad on the part of believers and religion in general, I suppose, because it's such a treasure trove of wisdom that has been amassed throughout the centuries. And we should be looking to those sources of wisdom for guidance on how we can live our lives. Even if you aren't that keen on all the transcendent stuff, there's still plenty of practical wisdom there that can really be of help to anyone. And if you're not keen on the institutional stuff as well. Perhaps. Absolutely. This is a this is a way to to rediscover some of the riches of the tradition, even if you're a little bit soured on the institution. There's a question there, isn't there? Can we boil our beliefs down to a life hack? Yeah, this is this is a source of great angst for me personally because really? I do not want to do that. I do not. I, I shudder at the thought of people just cherry picking what they want and then just junking the rest. Um, I think that the good advice that is available through religion is intimately entwined with its claims about reality, its sense of the divine, its connection with the transcendent. So I do not want to have that like severing, I suppose, that can easily go on. And you see it so often online, you know, people will say, oh, you know, here's a couple of tips from Buddhism and that are just, you know, easy for your life, no problem. But don't worry about all this other stuff up here. It's it's too abstract. It's not, not relevant. But I want to, in this series, explore how relevant it is, see people join the dots for us and show us how it actually lands in their lives and its connection to what they believe. 
So who's going to help us with this? You've got three guests lined up for us over the next couple of weeks. Who's first cab off the rank? So we have first Matt Tan. He's a thinker and writer and very, very smart guy, a theologian as well. He's taught at Notre Dame University and written a book called Redeeming Flesh, The Way of the Cross with the Zombie Jesus. So a, a pop culture expert as well, which I love. Uh, I first came across Matt when I saw that he was giving a talk on sloth. And so I thought, well, let's talk to him about that because we live in this society that basically makes all of us slothful. And I know in saying that, it sounds so ancient and archaic and weird to be saying that, but we're landing it in our everyday context by thinking about all the devices that we have on hand all the time. So in this particular show, he'll be talking about Netflix, but it's all about the devices that we have all around us and the way we just scroll mindlessly through them. Well, maybe I'm the last person in middle-class Australia not to have Netflix at home, (laughs) but yeah, the infrastructure of distraction... It goes far beyond that these days, doesn't it? It's hard to escape, so I look forward to hearing Matt Tan on Sloth, Distraction and the Temptations of Netflix. Hi, everyone. So I'm Matthew Tan. I am a secretary in the Archdiocese of Sydney. I'm also an adjunct senior lecturer in theology at the University of Notre Dame. I'm an author. I've written uh, a book on theology and zombies, and I also blog at awkwardasiantheologian.com, which is a blog trying to bring academic theology to um, personal experience. Awkward Asian theologian. Very awkward. What is going on there? (laughs) The idea basically is just to show how theology can actually help us negotiate through the complexity and awkwardness of everyday life. Fantastic. I'm going to head there straight away after we finish. Please do. (laughs) Now, we're in the season of Lent. Mm. It it often marks, uh, for the believer, a season of prayer, reflection, self-denial. Some believers Mm -hmm. even use it as a a way to bring in some self-discipline. Yep. Are you giving up something for Lent? I am. I've given up Netflix for Lent. I've basically found over time that I've actually been a real consumer of Netflix. And so I just thought this is actually something that I can do without, you know, during the time of Lent. You mentioned before that you've written about theology and zombies. That's right. So you're, you're, you're zombieing out in front of Netflix. Is that, does that describe it well? Absolutely right. I didn't even think about that. I wasn't even mindful about that until you mentioned it. Right. Okay. So, <laughs> so hang on. So paint the picture. Normally, right. I mean, I'm, this is my average Wednesday night as mm. well. You're sitting in front of the TV. You're just on Netflix. Do you find that it takes forever to even just select what you're going to watch? Because even just scrolling through all the selections is is already a mindless activity. Very much so. I mean, I spend more more time um, scrolling through the options than I do actually watching a program. Yes, me too. Mm. Wow. And and it's not as if that my engagement with the content actually gets active. It's actually uh, when I actually start watching a program, it basically becomes an opportunity for me to zone out. I even zone out of the program which is something that I've become really cognizant of. And that mindlessness in consuming the content of Netflix was one of the prompts that made me decide, you know what, I really could do with removing myself from that mindlessness, even for this period of Lent. So what is going on there? Because if you are watching something, but you're not actually attending to it, you're Mm. actually using it to distract, essentially, Mm. yourself. Mm. What's going on there? Well, I think that Netflix has become part of this larger economy of distraction. I think we live in a, in a culture right now where distraction has become the norm rather than the exception. We have distractions in all sorts of pursuits, in all sorts of devices. 
And Netflix basically fits into that as one source of distraction amongst many. And what are we trying to do when we distract ourselves and we've built this infrastructure, if you mm, like, mm. Um, of distraction? Why, why are we doing that? It's a bit hard to come up with a reason that is actually like a catch-all, like a one-stop answer for all of the complexity of human experience. However, one thing that I've really become aware of, and certainly within myself, is that when I distract myself, I try to remove myself from having to do or think through questions that I'm meant to think through, do things that I am meant to do. There's a certain redirection right, from the path I am supposed to be on. Now, that path can be different for, for different types of people, but the fact of the matter is that there is this main purpose for my life. And this whole infrastructure of distraction, as you put it, turns my attention away from that. Mm, so it's, it's almost like, if I can use a food analogy, mm. you're hungry, but you eat something fast food and junky rather than something that's actually going to nourish you and that, satisfy you. That's right. I mean, I can take it one step further and basically say you're here with the burger and fries and you end up spending more time on the fries and the actual burger. Yeah, right. You can tell I love burgers. <laughs> <laughs> so Lent is a particular season um, of the liturgical calendar mm. for believers, but mm. what you're saying and the sorts of realisations you're having as a result of giving up Netflix, mm -hmm. surely this is good a good thing to realise at any time of the year, right? Oh, absolutely. The season of Lent is a focus period for a person to engage in these you know, disciplines of self-denial. And put more positively, it's also an opportunity for believers to actually refocus their lives back onto um, the very thing that gives their lives their purpose and meaning, which is God. Right? The, the denials are basically a, a vehicle for that. But at the same time, it's not as if that we can stop redirecting ourselves to God when Lent is over. It's something that we are actually meant to continue to orient ourselves right through the year, not just in a particular period of the liturgical year. So Matt, as you found as you've given up Netflix during Lent, are you finding that it's reaping spiritual rewards for you? There is. I found that I am focusing more on my prayer life, opened up a lot more space for reading, in particular spiritual reading. You know, there is a, a certain opening up of a zone of freedom when one does not, you know, inundate oneself with distractions. Which is funny, right? Because we often would say that your ability to choose whatever you want to do, including just spend your evening on Netflix, mm -hmm. is the very mark of a liberation, right? Whereas Absolutely. you're saying it actually shuts yeah, yeah. you down and closes you off to other possibilities. That's right. There's a shutting down, there's a deadening that comes with that, you know, with that emphasis on asserting one's freedom. Even if that asserting of one's freedom is the freedom to actually you know, become a dullard, become, uh, you know, a zombie in front of your screen. So we've been talking about distraction, mm -hmm. but you're now saying that autonomy and that kind of um, the freedom to choose for yourself something that mm -hmm. even if it's not necessarily good for you yep. is part of what you were talking about. And we, I know you've done some research and thinking into this idea of sloth. Mm. Now we today will think that the sloth refers to this cute furry animal, but... Mm -hmm. It's also known as one of the seven deadly sins, right? Absolutely. Can you tell us just briefly what the seven deadly sins, where they came from, mm -hmm. and then we'll get into the whole how sloth fits into it? Sure. As a one-liner explanation as to what the seven deadly sins are, they are sort of the foundational sins from which every known sin 
springs forth, right? To put it in more anthropological terms, because that is a way to sort of understand how the deadly sins work, they are sort of foundational ways by which people orient themselves to the world um, and to God as well. So autonomy then mm-hmm. would be very key to those kinds of sins in that in that sense. Very much so. When we talk about the sin of sloth, for instance, I'm um, reminded of a book by a philosopher named R.J. Snell, and he basically talks about the sin of sloth, which we in everyday life sort of associate with laziness. Mm. R.J. Snell basically says that sloth has very little to do with laziness. It's actually a secondary effect. The primary effect is actually the imperative to be autonomous, right? So before sloth is about laziness, it is actually about autonomy. And the laziness or the lethargy, right, the refusal to do what one is supposed to do becomes the secondary effect of the imperative to be autonomous. So what does that imperative to be autonomous look like? Is Mm -hmm. it that my choice to kind of sit down and surf Netflix without actually like settling on a program that I want to listen to? Correct. And there's a certain insidiousness that comes with the um, assertion of autonomy. St. Augustine had this line when he talks about what sin is. He calls sin a curving in upon oneself. There's a sort of emphasis to try and be autonomous And yet at the same time, that very autonomy collapses upon itself. It's it's such an insidious thing. Meaning like it's dehumanizing. It's dehumanizing. That's right. You think that you are actually um, asserting your humanity by asserting your freedom. And yet that very thing becomes the, the means by which you become less than human. And one of the ways to bring Netflix back into it, or just any kind of distraction, is that you actually deaden yourself as you lose yourself in this whole smorgasbord of distraction. Well, this is like frightening, right? Because we have devices in my hand. I've, mm. I'm holding two right now. Um, everywhere I go, there's screens. We, yeah. we just There's distraction all around us. Mm. So are we in hell, basically? We're not exactly in hell, but we are given a, a sort of foretaste of what hell can look like when it is sort of characterised by this ongoing isolation from one another. In the Christian tradition, human life basically finds its fulfillment in communion with God and with neighbour. And so, isolation from both God and neighbour is one of the key ingredients for what hell is like. You're listening to Spiritual Lifehack on Soul Search with Justine Toe and Catholic theologian Matthew Tan. Now, to go back to what you asked originally regarding where the seven deadly sins comes from, it basically originates from what are called the Desert Fathers, a series of writings by ascetics living in, in Egypt around the 3rd and 4th century. So, these guys um, had key insight into us today, you want to argue, even if they lived in very different circumstances to That's us. Right. That's right. So, even though they lived in the 3rd or 4th century, when there weren't any of these devices, they nonetheless were able to pick out these basic orientations towards God and the world. And so, when I see the, you know, the, the whole economy and infrastructure of distraction that I, uh, through devices and through the, the whole range of pursuits that are laid out before us, I sort of see an institutionalization of the very thing that was identified by the church fathers in the in the 3rd and 4th centuries. 
yes, you, you might be giving up Netflix for Lent, but mm-hmm. you're not going to give up your smartphone anytime soon. And, you know, we do love our phones, though, don't, don't we? Like, I there's do something, love my phone. Yeah, but are you saying that it's just when it veers into addiction or an, an, an addictive tendency that you can see how destructive it actually can be? Yeah, the line between use and addiction is actually a very thin one. Can you paint a fuller picture for mm-hmm. us? How do you see the spiritual dimensions of sloth in your own life? The, the most basic experience is that, you know, with the time that I lose in, you know, mindlessly s- scrolling through Netflix or social media, for that matter, is that with all the time that I um, use doing, doing that mindlessly, I am not actively considering where I stand and where I sit in my relationship with God or with my neighbor. The um, use of, of these devices isolates me. It disconnects me from my neighbor. It disconnects me from my prayer life. There is a very practical um, dimension to this. And of course, in, in so not being you know, engaged in the practices of your prayer life, your prayer life suffers. And if my prayer life suffers, the spiritual dimension of my existence um, suffers with it. Yeah, so as a theologian, mm-hmm. you would say that distraction and sloth, it's, it's actually bad for the soul. Yeah, very much so. Be, um, because, and, and here I'm bringing in RJ Snell again, sloth basically is the drive to not, you know, to not do what you are meant to do. Because sometimes the things that you are meant to do are not pleasant. So you want to distract yourself with mm. pleasant things. Yeah. So when you distract yourself with pleasant things, you are actually not doing what you are meant to do as not just as a human being, but also as a creature that is made for communion with God and neighbor. I'm removing myself from that. Matt, are you saying that even spiritual people struggle in their relationship with God? I think religious and spiritual people have an even bigger struggle in their relationship with God than those who, than those who aren't, because usually those who aren't, aren't aware of it. The ones that are religious or spiritual, they are the ones that are aware of it. It is usually the case that those who are the, master, the spiritual masters, particularly in the Christian tradition, it is the spiritual masters who suffer the, la- the, the greatest spiritual attacks. You can see this depicted in artwork, for instance, um, the very famous depictions of the um, temptations of St. Anthony of Egypt is one case in point. There are so many different versions of um, this painting. Uh, you know, St. Anthony of Egypt is, one, is the spiritual grandfather of the Desert Fathers and Mothers, and he is the one that suffers some of the greatest temptations. It's depicted in different ways and in different periods. In the earliest periods, probably around the, um, the early Renaissance, he is depicted as being attacked by various types of monsters and demons. And then as we get to later centuries, particularly the 18th and 19th centuries, he's sort of being attacked in the form of coming under the allure of beautiful women, essentially. So you've mentioned St. Anthony, and he was one of these um, early church fathers who was subject to these sorts of temptations. So, so, so meaning that people who devoted their life to God in that monastic sense, I mm-hmm. suppose, they were right in the firing line. Is that right? For, Very much so. Yeah. Um, to bring in another name, there is an, another 4th century Egyptian figure named Evagrius of Pontus, and he quite literally wrote the book about sloth. The text that he wrote was called the Practicos, and he dedicated an entire chapter to the monks being attacked by this vice of sloth, one of which is this constant distraction 
in the lead up to certain hours where he's the monk basically just starts fidgeting and moving about trying to see whether his friends are nearby and finding that they're not. So, I mean, obviously they didn't have this ecosystem of distraction that we have, no. and yet the, the, the issue is exactly the same. Very much so. And not only that, the effects that Evagoras talks about are actually far more dramatic um, than just mere deadening. Uh, Evagoras actually talks about how, from distraction, the monk actually moves towards an active hatred of his brothers, and then also an active hatred of God as well. And so what did the church fathers say about... Mm how you combat sloth. Evagorius had one simple instruction to monks that were attacked by the vice of sloth. He said, go back to your cell and read the Psalms. Now, on its face, it may not sound particularly useful, and yet it actually is a sort of encapsulation of a series of attitudes, right? It's, it's not just that you go back into, your, into one spot and just, you know, mechanically say the Psalms. What Evagoras seems to be pointing towards is this need for two things. One is stability, right? To go back into one cell. A cell is not a, exactly an expansive place. Um, to go back into one cell requires a, a certain uh, sense of stability and orientation towards the stable, the stationary, so that you are actually not constantly fidgeting about, allowing yourself for that distraction to take place. The second thing that comes with this instruction is the emphasis on attention, right? I mean, to read the Psalms requires a certain amount of attention, right? You can mindlessly read the Psalms. You can just prattle on the Psalms about as mindlessly as you watch Netflix. However, with the emphasis on attention, you're actually switching on a part of yourself that is active, Right? So you're not passively allowing things to happen to you. You are actually engaging a part of yourself. And in so engaging a part of yourself, you're actually opening yourself towards God and neighbor because you need that intentionality in order to live out the spiritual life. So we're talking here about spiritual life hacks. And I guess the temptation mm -hmm. here for people who don't belong to any faith tradition mm -hmm. is to just listen to what you've said and be like, okay, so I need to retreat um, mm -hmm. and I need to focus my attention on something and I need to slow down and really bring myself back to awareness of what we're doing today. Yes. Do you reckon you can get the same benefit if you take the good advice but then get rid of the God part? As a theologian, I would ha I would say no, but that is not to say that in and of themselves, the practices of slowing down, paying attention to what's around you can have natural beneficial effects. But the other point that I would like to make as a theologian is that part of the reason why Evagrius says read the Psalms is not just so that we can focus our attention, but to also realize that what we are focusing our attention on is the God who gives us purpose, meaning, and direction to our life. Without that, to act as our, our guiding star, our anchor, we are actually marooned. And being marooned actually leaves us more open to distraction uh, than if we had a certain sense of direction given to us by someone else, namely God. So it's like an opening out to the divine. It is an active opening out yeah. um, to the divine, for sure. Yeah, right. So we're in this period of Lent. It's leading up, of course, to marking the crucifixion of Jesus. Mm -hmm. 
you've written the book Zombie Jesus. Mm -hmm. Traditionally, you know, we talk about the resurrection of Jesus. How come you're classing him as among the undead? Oh, okay. Yeah. So, the, um, the, the, the title of the book was called Redeeming Flesh, The Way of the Cross with Zombie Jesus. Part of the reason why I wrote the book was actually because it was meant to be a Lenten retreat that became a book. The reason why I spoke about Jesus as the undead, it actually comes from a line in the second letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians, where it says that he who was without sin became sin on our behalf, so that through him we might be made righteous. I was sort of emphasizing not so much the, the fact that Jesus was undead, but by becoming one of the undead, he becomes one of us. One of the chapters that I wrote is entitled, The Zombie is Us. And um, basically saying that through uh, wanton consumption, particularly through wanton consumption, um, we have deadened ourselves. And that becomes a very unavoidable part of our human condition. And yet, Jesus, rather than dis you know, distancing himself from us, shares in that condition and becomes one of the undead with us. That's the basic line that I was using with the book. But to also say that he doesn't just share in our condition, he redeems it. He redeems it by giving life to undead flesh, which of course is demonstrated um, not through the crucifixion, but through the resurrection. So, in a time when we've been talking about the deadening that destruction subjects us to, it's probably appropriate that we end on this note of, of hope. I suppose that there, is, even is though important. we are dead, we may find new life through mm -hmm. the divine. Absolutely. It is important that we actually bring the subject of hope because hope is a very important aspect of what keeps us alive. We do not do things unless there is a particular hope for a better future. And without it, death becomes inevitable. Catholic theologian Matthew Tan. He's an adjunct senior lecturer in theology at the University of Notre Dame in Sydney and the author of Redeeming Flesh, The Way of the Cross with Zombie Jesus. Next time on Spiritual Life Hack, Justine Toe returns to help us think about stories, their power to shape us and preserve our communities. She'll be joined by Judith Levitan, who'll share the origin story of the Jewish people, their liberation from slavery in ancient Egypt. Tune in again to Soul Search to hear that. Next time, we'll also have a terrific story about chocolate. Did you know it was originally a Quaker business? Just in case you were thinking too hard about giving things up for Lent. Well, thanks to producers Mariam Shahab and Jeff Wood for their work on the program this week, and to Emerus Cronin for sound engineering. I'm Meredith Lake, and I'll see you next time for Soul Search here on RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.